Well, welcome to another episode of Tell Me More. Disclaimer, this is a long one. Uh, if you managed to hang on, uh, kudos. We have a great time with our discussion. If you need a recap, it is at the end if you don't manage to make it through the whole thing in one sitting. But we had a great conversation and we hope you will enjoy it. Welcome back to this episode of Tell Me More. Uh, we are in the studio, and it is Monday morning. September 11th. It is September 11th. Mm. We have just acknowledged that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how long we want to take on that, but we we would miss a moment if we didn't just mm-hmm. stop, mm-hmm. recognize mm-hmm. a terrible and momentous and culture-shifting moment happened mm-hmm. 22 years ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, give it's it a second. Hard to believe it's been that long. <clears throat> yep. We just talked about where we – I mean, everybody, that's the thing. Where mm-hmm. were you? What were you doing? And where were y'all? Luke school. I mean, I was a sophomore in high school. I was a sixth grader. I was in math class. Huh. I came out of chemistry and someone said, it was Osama bin Laden. And I said, who is that? What are you talking about? Isn't that crazy? Uh-huh. This is the vocabulary that we got introduced to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway. And I was right here. I was. It was my first um, full official um, staff meeting. Uh, we were meeting over in the student center. And it was it was one of those kind of all day staff meetings. Had every, got everything set up, and I was uh, I was in my office here in the Wade Building. And uh, our best friend in Dallas called me, and you know I, I knew nothing. I answered my cell phone, and she said, "Dennis, where's where's Cindy? Where are the children?" Hmm. I said, well, I, "I don't know." <laughs> yeah, what a question. <laughs> the children right. are in school. She said, "Y'all need to go get them right now." You need. To, I, she said, "I've tried to call Cindy. She won't answer her phone." You need to go get the kids. We're under attack. I was like, Elizabeth, what are you talking about? And she said, turn, turn the TV on. So my, mm-hmm. my office in those days had a TV, and I, I turned it on. And, and I was still on the phone with her, just standing there. And still mm-hmm. not, you know, I mean, like nobody knew what mm-hmm. really was happening. And I told her, I said, okay, let, let me call Cindy. And, and so I, I called Cindy. Well, by then, Cindy was by her phone, and she was with my parents. And, and, um, and I think even by then, y'all, we couldn't go get the kids. I think we talked about that. Well, the schools had already you know, mm. they, 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 they were they locked down? down? Lockdown, yeah. I guess. And um, I guess, you know, nobody knew what was going on. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was a, <clears throat> it it changed everything. Mm-hmm. It's really, really. It did. It wasn't just something that happened. It changed yeah, everything. It really did. Mm-hmm. It changed us, I think, you know, in a lot of ways. So, uh, yeah. And, um, of course, all the families that were affected in so many places by it. Um, <clears throat> yeah. It's um it's a it's a sober reminder, isn't it? You know, but we had to at least acknowledge that today, y'all. We goodness. did, yeah, and we don't need to dwell there. Yeah. Although my mind but, is going, but so okay. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the church. Let's talk about, How about the, the church, y'all. Church. So we have a lot to talk we, about. We, <laughs> yeah, y'all. Before we hit record, I threw out seven different ways this could go, and there are more. But that was just my notes from yesterday. But there are a few things that I that are interesting to me that could be interesting to the listener, and so I'm going to mm-hmm. throw some of those out. And y'all just take it the way you want to, or if you say, you know what, that's not interesting, we'll go some other direction, and we'll just see where we end up in, you know, 35 to 40 minutes. So. Should I just say, that's boring? <laughs> yeah. We'll just move on. Uh, say, no one else is wondering about that. Right. So, okay. <laughs> Number one, the text that you used was Acts 2, mm-hmm. which is beautiful. I mean, it's Great Acts text. 2. Mm-hmm. It's Acts 2. Yeah, it. there's so much to it. We can, and we could just stay there, mm-hmm. and that would be an appropriate tell me more. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You, in in Pentecost, it talks about there's this festival going on, mm-hmm. and it's the festival of Pentecost. I mean, mm-hmm. there are – when we think about Pentecost now, we mm-hmm. think about this moment. Mm-hmm. But when they when they hear Pentecost, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It was something that was already part of culture. It wasn't a new mm-hmm. word introduced to them. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. just in general, there are all these Jewish festivals that Jesus mm-hmm. shows up at, and mm-hmm. then now the Spirit is showing up at. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. What are they trying to What's mm-hmm. What's the, What are the writers trying to do? What was mm-hmm. Jesus trying to do to kind of do that, mm-hmm. you know? Well, uh, <clears throat> I would probably say the, the 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 gospel writers, and then uh, here in Luke in the Book of Acts, are just acknowledging the rhythm of life for a first century Jew. <laughs> you know, um, the Jews basically organized their lives around the work of God in the life of Israel, and so the calendar dictated that for them, and it was really all based upon what God had done and what God would do. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> you come to Jerusalem for the Passover to celebrate what God had done, mm-hmm. you know, how God had delivered them. And, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, there's the hope in their life at the time that he'll do the same thing with Rome. So there's a lot of, mm-hmm. there's always a lot of heightened um, anticipation, if you will, around the Passover. Um, but, but there was also the, the acknowledgement that God's hand was with Israel. They're living in this, arid climate. Some of you have been to Israel. Some of our listeners have been there. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have, there's a there's a lushness in some places in that part of the world, but there's also a whole lot of desert. And so you think about how these folks would celebrate the fact that God had given them grain to eat, food. So the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks after Passover, was became known as Pentecost because mm-hmm. it's 50 days after mm-hmm. Passover. Well, that was a time to celebrate the goodness of God, you mm-hmm. know, that he had provided mm-hmm. their crops for them. And so they would acknowledge it. They would stop and thank him. And and a lot of scholars say by the time of, of the first century that during the intertestamental period, somehow the whole celebration of Mount Sinai got woven into Pentecost, you know, the imagery of mm. God giving the law and kind of the anniversary celebration of that. Mm. But the point is, to me, the bigger context is the Jewish people built their lives around their relationship with God mm-hmm. and what God had done, what God was doing, what God would do. Mm-hmm. And that they just built it into their calendar, and it was just a part, just like they did <clears throat> the very same thing was done on a weekly basis for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Sabbath was an acknowledgement of the fact that they belonged to God. And so there's there's mm-hmm. there's some beauty in that to me that, <clears throat> you know, they've just basically built their lives around being Jewish, mm-hmm. about being the people of God. And it just so happens that, I say it just so happens, <laughs> at these right. particular yeah. moments, yeah, yeah, yeah. God chose to intervene and act. I mean, mm-hmm. when when you think about it, and on, in terms of the Jewish calendar, you're, you're celebrating God's provision, you know, with a, with the sacrificial lambs in a, in the home of every right. Jew and for Passover, and then that's when God chooses to, um, according to His purpose, allow Jesus to be crucified. Yeah, and I think mm. it's, so, maybe. We miss it some some of those right. Or like Jesus, I'm thinking about in John. I think it's John. Yeah, it would be. It's an I am statement. Mm-hmm. Jesus shows up to the festival of booths, which has a lot of light, and he says, "I'm the light of the world." Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? He is. Right. It's not an accident. That's right. It. it, it I was going to say illuminate. I wasn't trying to do a pun, but it illuminates these. <laughs> mm-hmm. It fulfills it these Jewish rituals, mm-hmm. and I mean, there's several of those, mm-hmm. and I think. And I think these writers so, yeah. are basically so with Pentecost. Yeah, they're letting you know. You know, if you're paying attention, if you have ears to hear, look at when this happens. So here you are. Yeah, it, it colors it, right? Yeah, you're, yeah. you're thinking about how God appears on Mount Sinai, and there's all that 
phenomena, you know, mm-hmm. the smoke and the thunder and mm. the voice of God given to Moses. And and a, really a new era is being launched because now this is going to give definition to the people of God. You get Ten Commandments and, and the Torah, which, of course, they are, you know, going to— um, is really going to shape their entire identity. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, well, when does the new era begin? How do you inaugurate a new era? Well, at Pentecost, and what do we have? Well, you have this this mighty sound that was like, like he says, a rushing wind. And then you have the the fire, which, mm-hmm. you, would, which you would also, I think, connect to just the presence of God, the glory of God, mm-hmm. the smoke that came from that fire mm-hmm. in the presence of God in, at Sinai. Well, you have that. Well, you had God's spoken word on Mount Sinai. Well, now you've got the spoken word of the gospel through mm-hmm. the apostles. So mm-hmm. it's like it's yeah. all there if you're really paying attention. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. it could have happened any time. Yeah. My goodness, you know, God could have done this any time. But he chose to do it at these festivals, mm-hmm. which to me helps connect our story to our roots, our history, our heritage, this trace through the people of Israel. And uh, but it certainly contextualizes the events and the miracles, if you will. Yes. Mm-hmm. So thank you for yeah. Well, and then even mm-hmm. beyond that, and this is something that theologians and New Testament scholars have done is there's also a connection between what happens in Acts two with Pentecost to the Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. So in Babel, you have this undoing mm-hmm. uh, of a common language, mm-hmm. and then the spread, and so people can't understand each other anymore. And then in Acts two. At Pentecost, the Spirit comes, and people can understand each other regardless of their languages. So I was wondering if you could talk more about how scholars kind of came to take that view and connect these two events that on the surface we don't always put together. Good. Well, I think if you if you look at it theologically that um, the book of Genesis, um, it, in, the, in the book of Genesis, there's this unfolding drama of the curse, if you will, you know, that once Adam and Eve choose this path of rebellion, it's it's a cascade of judgment and brokenness and and just evidence of the curse. And so one of the earliest signs of the curse, at least in my opinion, is the broken relationships mm-hmm. and the division. So You've got Adam and Eve covering each other. Mm -hmm. So that's the first sign of brokenness and division relationally. Then you've got them hiding from God. Well, there's another sign of brokenness Mm -hmm. and division. And then they're in, I mean, who knows what the relationship was like between Adam and Eve and the animal kingdom, so to speak. But but God then takes an animal Mm -hmm. and kills the animal, I believe, in their presence to show them here's blood being spilled on on your behalf and and it's your fault and then takes the very skins of that dead animal and says now you have to wear this now you know what you've done is not it's just not enough so and then then you go right to the to the next uh you get the you get the the next story where in the family Cain and Abel you know have this brokenness so it's so um it's, it's so bad by this point Cain kills his brother so then you get to Genesis 11, and the curse is spread everywhere. Now people can't even communicate with each other anymore. You know, their languages are are confused, and they're scattered. And they even begin, some would say, you've got this whole theory of, of just urbanization. How, how did that work? You kind of move from the garden to the city, which, again, mm-hmm. is a whole other fascinating thread mm-hmm. there. But anyway, 
Well, then, <clears throat> you know, you just watch the power and the force of the curse as it unfolds. And you look at the brokenness in these stories and mm -hmm. the ills of humanity are just on full display in the Old Testament. And so you come to Pentecost and, and you have this um, inauguration of a new era and the Spirit of God is given. And then the next thing you know, you've got Jews from all over the world. So there's some level of brokenness there that the Jews are not really living in the promised land as the people of God, mm -hmm. that's not where they are. Mm -hmm. They're out. There are more of them out than in, and and they're speaking other languages rather than Hebrew. Once again, another sign that there's brokenness within the family of God itself, as well as what's happening all around them. And so at Pentecost, to me, what happens is that it, it's a beautiful thing. They're all brought together by their commitment to Jesus and through the the power of the Holy Spirit then it's like there's this glimpse of the fact how, of how it will be one day that the gospel is universal in its character. And so the mm -hmm. fact that they're they're speaking, and I think the miracle's in the speaking, not the hearing, mm -hmm. um, but that's because I believe in the proclamation of the gospel is, is such so much a part of all of this mm -hmm. and the apostolic witness. So mm -hmm. I think because we'll it talks about those, how perhaps. they're speaking in these other tongues, not just that but they're hearing. Right, not just yeah. they're hearing. They're speaking in these other tongues. Right. So, mm -hmm. so to me, that is a sign of the force of the gospel that is going to reverse the curse completely one day. We just get a glimpse of it at Pentecost is how I would see that. Mm -hmm. So um, mm. it's a powerful thing to me, you know. And it's a great word for us as uh, missiologists that, you know, we're the, the gospel is good enough, sturdy enough, powerful enough, forceful enough. It needs to be spoken in every language. Amen. You know, so the, the Pentecost miracle continues. How about what that? I would say. And, uh, yes. and I was reading an article the other day. There's all this research being done now with artificial intelligence trying that, that missiologists are beginning to recognize the value of it, that it might be yes. one answer. Speeding up translation yeah. work. Right. Providing the, the true reversal of the curse where it's all over with. So kind of fascinating it is how about that mm -hmm. yeah. well okay pentecost. well that, that's another yeah <clears throat> so okay pentecost happens <laughs> it did the church is born mm -hmm. it's a believer's church correct which was one of your main points of mm -hmm. yesterday mm -hmm. there's a lot to talk about <laughs> so <laughs> truly it's a believer's church what does it mean to be a believer what mm -hmm. are we believing what do we do then where's god and all of that what direction do you want to go, Luke? Oh, man. When we talk about like believers. I know, I know, I know, I <laughs> know. We talked a lot about baptism. We're going to we get did. there. Do we want to mm -hmm. get there now? What mm -hmm. do you think? Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't know. Where, where, where's the Lord leading you, Dr. <laughs> I'm passing well, the buck on Tuesday. I know. There's so much. <laughs> well, you know, I would say this. When, so when the church is birthed um, here, now, you know, John Stott, he, he always liked to say, uh, he's one of my favorite New Testament theologians, by the way, and, and God rest his soul. What a great man. He did not like to use the language the church was birthed at Pentecost because he liked to say that the church was really birthed in the heart of God at, at the calling of Abraham. Hmm. And that this is just now the new covenant expression of, mm. of mm -hmm. the people of God. And how do you feel about and, that? Um, you know, I, I love John Stott. You want to give a nod to John Stott, but <laughs> also give a nod to him, absolutely. do you feel comfortable saying and this is I, the birth of the church? I would, I would disagree respectfully with John Stott, and I'll say that with a little trepidation. 
um, because he is. Yeah, it takes a lot to disagree with. Yeah, he's one of my all time. We can say that Jesus institutes the church and (laughs) the Spirit brings it together. Okay, let's do that. There you go. I like that. And uh, so when that happens, I like Abraham. (laughs) So kidding. So who comprised it? You know, in other words, you've got the 120 followers of Jesus. Yeah, if this is the beginning, right? Who gets in? Well, he says those who accepted the message. Tell and us then, more. And then in verse 44, it says, and these believers were all of is one mind. Is that the first time believers yeah, is believers, used? Yes. Okay. And so there it is. They're, 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 and that's um, the 3,000 that get added that's to right. their number. That's right. So the believers, believers are those who accepted the message. Correct. What's the message? The message is obviously the gospel, the apostolic witness. Wow. You know, which is rooted in prophecy. This is foundational, and y'all. This Jesus whom you killed is God's anointed one. He's the salvation of the whole world. <laughs> okay. And God repent. has made him Lord and Messiah. If and, we uh, don't get this part right, right. Yeah. we might screw up the rest. We're a long right? way from where we need to you be. You can yeah. repent and belong yes, exactly. to God's family. That's right. And so, but it happens at belief. I mean, that's that's the initiation. That's the beginning point, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, we've um, we've all been reading this book together, The de-church- the Great Dechurching. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how sociologists study the phenomenon of religion mm-hmm. historically, at least in the in the modern era. They have linked together the whole idea of belief and belonging and behavior, those three kind mm-hmm. of measurements. So you ask people, what do you believe about fill in the blank? Um, what behaviors do yeah. you exhibit? Do you, do you show that? What, I mean, so do you go to church or whatever? If someone and says uh, the word religiosity, which is the technical term, right. what they're talking about are what are it's the exhibited exhibited behaviors of a religious person, right? So you got behavior, mm-hmm. but you got that whole the sociological phenomenon of belonging. Well, all of those are present right here in, to me at this very first um, gathering of these believers. They they're believing, they're believing the message, and uh, and they're behaving. They're repenting, mm-hmm. and and then they're belonging. They're baptized, and now they're now they belong together in a community. And then Luke starts describing that community. So, so I think all of those are present at the beginning, but the belief is powerful because that's the initiation, and then the believers are then baptized. And the word, we all know this, but we'll remind everybody mm-hmm. that um, the New Testament's written in Greek. So when you're translating something into another language, um, uh, you know, we use that phrase lost in translation. Sometimes mm-hmm. things just get lost in translation. Sometimes um, because of factors surrounding the whole translation process, you sometimes translators have chosen to just not translate a word. It's called transliterating. Yeah, just bring it into mm-hmm. the other language. Copy the sounds, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a fascinating decision if you think about it. So, baptizo yeah, is say, one of those give words. Me an example. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's not an English word, it's a Greek word. And so our word Baptist or baptism is a, is really a made up word. It's a borrowed word. Like Luke just said, they just copied the sounds from a Greek word. And the reason they had to do that was is because in 1611, when the when the Bible finally was officially pl- uh, translated in English uh, by King James, who actually persecuted the baptizers, which is always quite fascinating to me mm-hmm. that some Baptists will only mm-hmm. read the King James Version of the Bible, and Let's he imprisoned the very that. first Baptist preachers. Okay, listen. Just a little side just, note. I don't know. No big thing. So yeah. if you're KJV, only Baptist. <laughs> just think about it. Some food for thought. <laughs> anyway. Um, hey, but, y'all said it, not me. <laughs> um, but... The problem the translation team had was you do have the king who is authorizing. I mean, it is called, I guess, legally, it's called the authorized version. We call it the King James Version. But nevertheless, he's well, it's authorizing been a few years, you, know. The, you know, the scripture to be translated, and all they do is sprinkle infants. Okay? Yeah. And so 
these translators. I will, want to talk about that. Okay, the sprint, the translators <laughs> so at some point. But they know that. And so, what do you do with the word baptizo? Because in Greek, it would mean it means immerse. Yeah. So, for example, if we were to translate the sentence, "I'm dunking an Oreo in milk." Yes. Yeah. You would use the word baptizo. baptizo that's right. It's in, I baptize. That's so right. So I would baptize an Oreo. Mm-hmm. It's the same it's word. The same word. If you saw a um, a ship that sank at sea, it was baptized. So the translator said, "Let's hold on to that word." Let's let's just hold on to it until we make a decision. And so, so every they don't time want you, to write out, right? So every time you come to it, just transliterate it. So back just, in 1611, yeah, just, they said we don't want to get in trouble. That's right, and that follows. <laughs> we a don't want to cause a stink it, in the it, translation into say, Latin. It had already happened originally in Latin, and now you're doing it in Greek. I mean, in English. But it so, had political motive. I mean, yeah. is that? Well, it it had. I would say both, but I say theological and political. Okay. You couldn't divorce political and. Yeah. Religious motives yeah. at that time sure. period. They're one yeah. and the yeah. same. The I guess, church yeah. is the state, the state it, and the it, church. It had, are, it had um, cover your booty motives. Yeah, you just, you just couldn't. Yeah, you just, you, there's no way you would have called John, John the Immerser. No. You just you just couldn't have done that right. in the 17th century. Off with your head. Yeah, you just couldn't do it. And you couldn't do it with the Vulgate either. Yeah. You know, Jerome, you got to give Jerome credit. Off Jerome with does your the head. same thing. Yeah, so, um, but... So, so they say, well, just leave the word. That's right. Just let leave. y'all, let y'all right. decide. Okay. But, but so if we want to look at what happened that day, they were, they repented and they were immersed. Now, some people get a little caught up in what Peter said, what he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, well, the thing is, we have to, you, you always take challenging scripture and interpret it in light of scripture that's easier to understand. It's just mm-hmm. a principle of hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are several examples in the book of Acts where people followed Christ, received the gift of the Spirit, um, and spoke in tongues before they were baptized. So we know So we know that baptism, that. that's right. I think what, what he's saying is this is the order, repent and be baptized. Mm. But the heart of repentance is forgive. I mean, the heart of forgiveness of sin is repentance. And so, um, you know, the thief on the cross repented. So you've got examples, yeah. Yeah. you know, people repenting. But anyway. And if we were to take an Old Testament tack, God and the prophets would say, yeah. Away with your noisy worship. I don't care about your festivals. Exactly what I care about is your heart. Is your heart. That's right. Yeah, I don't want your sacrifice. I want you. So, so I, repent. Okay. They did. And they were all immersed. Mm-hmm. That's what Luke says. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they formed a new community. And so the very first church was a believer's church. That's the only way to get in. Those who had repented. That's right. And so everywhere they went, when you read the rest of the account in the book of Acts, that's what they did everywhere. And eventually Paul and Barnabas will will become these very prominent missionaries. They're preaching the very same message, and it's the same thing is going to happen. People are going to repent and be baptized. Now, Paul will codify some of this in his writings, Mm -hmm. but the narrative is there for us in the book of Acts. So when you look at early Christian history— all of the ancient baptistries that we have unearthed um, are huge. You know, they're, they're places you walk down in. The reason for that is, is because the church is immersed believers. Yeah. However, <clears throat> you, you, there was also at the time, you know, if you think about the, the backdrop, if you will, for Western Christianity, it is, it's Rome and Constantinople in the East, Rome in the West. Two huge, incredible cities of great power. And so over time, what's going to happen is the pastors of the churches of these of these huge m- metropolitan areas are going to become kind of the arbiters, if you will, the protectors maybe of our theology. 
In other words, what do we really believe? What do we believe about God? So you, you start having these huge theological questions that are being asked across the Christian family. And so those early theologians, they, they said, okay, we've got to, we got to answer some of these questions, you know? So they looked for, they looked for answers in the New Testament. Well, in the book of Acts, in Acts 15, when there was a huge theological question, what about Gentiles embracing the message and repenting and believing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can we baptize them? Do they have to be circumcised? Mm -hmm. that, I mean, what, what, at what yep. level mm -hmm. do they enter the Jewish family? Then they can be one of us. Mm -hmm. Well, they convened a council, and they brought together the theologians, the apostles, basically, to try to answer that question. James, who was pastor in the church at Jerusalem, and they basically gave the answer. The gospel really is the, is the message of salvation. You don't have to become a Jew you, to, be, to be a Christian, okay? Well, so you think about it as the church begins to spread across the ancient world. It was persecuted for the first 250 years or so and um, made, a hard, made it hard, you know, for people to do theology out in the open. Now, they did it in various places where the church was growing the most rapidly, which was in the East, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you've got the Roman authority in the West. And so in the East, in places like Asia Minor and Turkey, uh, all of you know, today would be Turkey, You've got the gospel just growing leaps and bounds, and, and prominent people are becoming believers. North Africa, the gospel just goes all across North Africa. And so you've got these these churches, these house churches that start to coalesce, but most every city kind of had a designated leader, if you will, kind of the the person that oversaw all of the house churches. And that person was the overseer. And so in Greek, that would have been the episkopos. In, in our language, we call that the bishop. Hmm. So you had a Bishop of Antioch, you had a Bishop of Jerusalem, a Bishop of Alexandria, a Bishop of Constantinople, eventually, not yet, that's going to take a little while, mm -hmm. but a Bishop of Rome. So all of these pastors are grappling with these deep, dense theological questions, and sometimes there's not enough vocabulary in, in, the, in the text to answer the questions. For example, um, what is the nature of God? How do you describe God? in a way that, that is true to what we believe the, the revelation of God has revealed to us, but put it in language that people can understand. Mm. So these theologians had to deal with that. What's the relationship between God and Jesus? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what, where, where did the Son come from? What is His origin, if there is an origin? Um, what's the nature of Christ? Was He fully human? Was he, was he fully divine? Did He have two natures? Did He have one nature? Well, so what starts happening is these theologians are coming together, and they basically took the Greek language originally to try to answer some of this, mm -hmm. you know. So you get words like homoousios, you know, rather than homoousios. Mm -hmm. Which is same substance all know that. same all like substance. All y'all listen right. and know that. Yeah, so if you have heard the saying, you know, it's the difference of one iota. That's because right. that in between those two words is one iota, right. which the is the Greek, Greek letter, letter I. I. That's right. But it's a it mm -hmm. it solved a huge theological is dilemma. Is Jesus like God or is, is Jesus he, God? Is he God? He's homoousios. He's of the same essence. People kill of each God. other over this kind of thing. Uh, they did. I know. I mean, <laughs> and, um, and so yeah, we joke about it, but it meant burned a at lot. the state. Yeah. yeah, you could be a yeah. heretic. Well, and it's because eventually uh, state power gets mixed right. in with this too. That's right. So you've got another. Thread. So it is with church history. Correct. <laughs> right. Well, you've got another thread that's starting to be woven into the into the fabric. And that is that these overseers, when Constantine takes over the empire, um, he's, uh, his father was this great uh, ruler in the East. Constantine was this big 
very successful general. This is about the year 311, yeah, by the way. Somewhere in that neighborhood. He's, and he's in the east, and he's in the era area of the empire that has, that has been drastically overrun by Christianity. You've got Maxentius in the west, who is still in the pagan culture of Rome. Well, Constantine is watching Diocletian rule from the east, and Diocletian is forcing soldiers to sacrifice to the Roman gods, and these Christian soldiers won't do it. So, so Diocletian at one point even says, maybe we need to we need to sacrifice some of these soldiers. Constantine says, generals <laughs> don't kill their own soldiers. <laughs> okay, generally so good wisdom. Obviously, this is not the right answer. Constantine's mother, Helena, had converted to Christianity. So Constantine's got that kind of in the background for him. And well, anyway, eventually Constantine decides to unite the empire again. Diocletian had divided the empire into dioceses. So if, you, if you're kind of paying attention here, um, he had cardinals and he had synods and he had this huge division, this organize, organizational structure for the empire, secular government. Mm. I'm hearing some cognates. Mm-hmm. So he, um, and why would you call it a diocese? Well, his name's Diocletian. So it's, you know, so play on his name. Mm-hmm. I'm going to break something up. I'm going to name it after me. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, why not? Yeah. I mean, you're the emperor. And so, um, so anyway, well, over time, it's all unwieldy or whatever. Constantine decides to just bring it all together. And he's he's one of those generals who basically had no peer. That just happens mm-hmm. sometimes. And he basically takes over the entire empire, comes into the West, and he um, he decides to march on Rome, which of course was illegal. You know, you couldn't cross the Rubicon. You know, you, you, any 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 engagement toward Rome was an act of war. Constantine challenged Maxentius's manhood and said anybody can hide out within the walls of Rome and fight. You know, I mean, a woman can do that. Why don't you come in here and fight like a man? Dang right. Yeah. So, but that was kind of his taunting. Mm-hmm. Come out here and fight like a man. Mm-hmm. You know, if you would, if you really want to show that you yeah. have an army, come out here and face a come real army. And all of Maxentius' advisors said, oh, well, of course not. We're not going to leave Rome. We're up on this. We have the seven hills. Mm-hmm. We have a wall around our city. And Maxentius said, I am going to go. They'd been, they'd been reared together, knew each other, they grew up as kids together. So Maxentius heads out and meets Constantine at the Milvian Bridge. And, you know, they get mired in all the mud and everything. Constantine's lying in wait and uh, destroys his army, cuts off Maxentius' head. And in, in true... You know, military fashion, he takes his head, puts it on his horse, and he marches into Rome with the head of Maxentius. Mm. Let everybody know that uh, Maxentius actually lost. <laughs> Here's his head. Mm. So, well, when Constantine gets to Rome, he's a little overwhelmed with how pagan it is because he's marching under the auspices of a Christian god now. At least that's the what we think. And he goes to Lateran Hill. And he finds out that that's where the kind of the chief soldiers of Maxentius lived, kind of Maxentius's bodyguards. So he has them and all their family slaughtered, and he gives that to the bishop, the pastor. And he says, okay, this hill, which was housing these pagan soldiers dedicated to these pagan gods led by a pagan emperor, I've destroyed all that. He said, now I'm not going to go all over Rome and tear down all the temples. Okay, I'm not doing that. But what I will do is I'm going to give you officially land for the first time in Rome that that the state says is yours. And so Constantine gives them the Lateran Hill. Mm. And they 
build the very first legal church. Now, the church was already in Rome, but the first legal church is built on that hill. It's still there today. It's called St. John Lateran. Do y'all go and, when uh, you visit? Uh, yes, of course. It used to be the home—it was the home of the bishops. So the bishop just moved in there mm. to live there with his family, and they basically kind of became the seat of Christianity for several hundred years to the 1300s. So this is 311, as Luke said, 313. They issue the Edict of Milan, which basically mm-hmm. says, okay. That's right. I don't know why I said yeah, 311. Yeah. Well, 313 is when the edict is given that everybody now is free. All right, now Christianity, all you pastors, figure all this out, okay? What about God? What about Jesus? What about Mary? You know, what we got all these pagan goddesses. Does Christianity have a woman <laughs> that we can offer to the masses, so to speak? I'm, 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 that sounds... Um, kind of uh, prejudicial to say, but I'm, but but there's some of but that in the background. That happens yeah. a little bit later down the line yeah, with Mary. Yeah, it's going to happen. But eventually, question is, okay, what about what about the people? One of the original controversies was, well, what about the people that left the church during persecution, and now Christianity is legal? They all want to come back. What do you do to them? Mm-hmm. And so you think about it. Uh, and again, a lot of the, it was mostly men. They would martyr the men. They'd leave the women to, a lot of times to raise their children. So you show up now at a legal church, and your husband was killed, you know, Katie, mm-hmm. and this other lady's husband defected. Yeah, he's fine. And now he's come back. He's right there. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at the pastor going, hey, wait a minute. You can't let James in. Mm-hmm. My, my husband was killed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been over here living as a widow on Poverty Row, mm-hmm. and this family right here is driving a Cadillac. Yeah, they're great. And now he just he's, so he's coming right back in the church. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you, got, you got that whole dynamic going on. And then you've also got the struggle between the East and the West because Constantine decided to move everything to Istanbul. He renamed the town Constantinople, another mm-hmm. shout-out. Humble, humble leaders. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And uh, so, well, then who's the most powerful pastor? The pastor of the church in Constantinople or the pastor of the church at Rome? You know, who, who's supposed mm-hmm. to call They're going to it out for a few hundred years. It's going to take them a while. But over time, there's no emperor in Rome. Mm-hmm. The emperor's in Constantinople. The emperor will never live in Rome again. So the Roman Empire will be ruled from Turkey. So the Roman emperor will never live in Rome again. So think about that. So who's the most powerful person in Rome? The pastor, the bishop. So guys like Leo, who were really gifted men, became incredibly powerful. And so now another thread's getting woven in, and it's the the centralized authority of the church as well as these doctrinal questions. Are y'all still with me? I'm just going to, history can be listeners, kind of... Listeners, yeah, listeners, Sprinkle in some baptism it. waters yeah. here in a minute. So, <laughs> so mm-hmm. you get to the question then, who can be a part of the church? How do you decide this who's is, in the church? This is tell me more. You yeah. can go as in-depth as you well, want. how do you decide who's in the church? And we what are the issues that the church is dealing with? Well, one of the issues that the church was dealing with was the fact that there was just so much sin in the world. How do you explain it? Look at the effects of it. Look at the carnage. And so you have Augustine who comes along, and Augustine looks at all of this, and he had he had lived an a immoral, former playboy himself had lived an immoral lifestyle, carried a lot of guilt. It's good. Augustine's answer was, "Well, sin is actually inherent in humanity. It's just you're just born with it. As a matter of fact, it's transmitted it's, in the it, passing yeah, of it's, it's just, generations. It's, it's biological. It's it's seed driven, and you know you transfer it." And not only that, Augustine said, and when that happens, you're guilty. So you get 
original sin from Adam, but you also get guilt from Adam. So Adam Correct. passes sin down, but Adam passes the guilt guilt down. That's to, right. All the way down. All the way. So when that baby is born, that baby is not just born a sinner. The church had historically embraced that, but that um, because that we believe that's taught in the scripture. But Augustine said the baby's born guilty. Guilty of sin, sin. Adam's sin. So what's the difference between a sinner and someone guilty of sin? Well, you can be you can be a sinner as a person and not yet be held accountable because you're not you aware have, of your sinfulness. Like an age of accountability. Correct. So there's no there's no answer for it yeah. because you're original sin is unaware. you're going to sin eventually. It's your yeah. nature. That's right. It's there. It's it's, it's almost like it's asleep in yeah. you. It'll be awakened, but you're not to be judged for it as a person because you're not accountable yet. You don't really know anything about it. You know, you look at your children. If you are your children sinners. Well, they're born sinners. Do they know? Well, of course they don't know. You know, you got three babies. Yeah, they have no no consciousness yeah. at all. Yeah. Okay. Well, Augustine said they did, and he and his writings became incredibly prominent, particularly in the West. And uh, and so, um, well, you've got centralized authority. The church is starting to flex its muscles. It's free now. These pastors are are incredibly influential people, and the and they are becoming. Um, basically, many MINI rulers in their mm-hmm. communities because they're just so powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, so the ch- people are turning to the church for answers, and then infant mortality rate is off the charts. So the church's answer was these babies are going to hell. So, because they're guilty. Correct. So, Augustine developed this entire understanding of grace, and you need these, these sacred acts that the church engages in. And the church, when the church engages in them, grace will be received. Because the world the is sinful, the church is if the church the is dispensary of right. grace. The church is the only one that can do it. So God's you know, a vessel for God grace. has given everything to the church. So the only answer is for the church to do something. So you you have this whole theological system that's built on the understanding of grace and the fact that the church holds the grace and dispenses the grace through sacred acts. Those became known as the sacraments. And one of those sacraments was, well, we've got to do something about these babies because they're dying and they're going to hell. They're guilty. Well, the only thing they could come up with was, well, we need to baptize them. And that the whole theology of infant baptism grew around the need to bring salvation to children that were dying and going to hell. So salvation became not the act that we just saw at Pentecost, which was following an act of repentance. Mm -hmm. It became salvific in its nature, Mm -hmm. and it was in the hand of the church and it was done in a way to dispense grace. And so now you've got the grace of God through Christ connected officially to the church. And then the church's power and authority is going to grow over time, several hundred years. Mm-hmm. And the church will develop other acts of grace, means of grace, sacred acts that only the church can do. And interestingly, all this theology is also going to impact what happens with how the Catholic Church views Mary and the fact that they then have to figure out that she's sinless so she can't pass sin down That's to correct. Jesus. That's I mean, right. it just mm-hmm. yeah. it leads. The Catholic Church is a perfectly logical entity. It is. And, and it's very rationalistic. It That's right. So Augustine was a rational thinker. So you're right. So what do you do with Mary? Well, okay. So eventually they develop a a huge doctrine called the Mm -hmm. doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that's the conception of Jesus. That's actually the conception of Mary. Mm. Mary, Mary's mother wasn't a virgin, but Mary's mother's womb was protected providentially by God. So she did not get that seed of sin from her father. Mm. So she was innocent 
And so when Jesus was born, he was born in an innocent womb, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So there was no sin to transmit. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of how you broke the chain. You know, you break it at Mary, not right. at Jesus. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the whole practice of infant baptism then just spreads like wildfire. And and um, and it and it's it's got teeth, mm-hmm. and not only that, it becomes a, a, an authoritative act. So let's say, for example, let's say you and Ryan have your triplets, mm-hmm. and Ryan and I are at odds with each other, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm the bishop, mm-hmm. and Ryan will not do the things that I've said he needs to do. He's not attending church. He's not doing X, Y, Z, just mm-hmm. pick whatever. Yeah. So I tell Ryan, you're you're disfellowship for right now, okay? So that means one of the one of the main acts of grace is to receive communion every week. You you receive in their mind, you receive the actual body and blood of Jesus. That's a means of grace. Well, you can't have that anymore, Ryan. And, uh, I'm not and you're trying that. to consume as much grace as you can. Absolutely, because you die. you're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. Mm-hmm. So you need as much as you. You're right. But penance, confession, these are all acts of grace. Y'all have your babies, mm-hmm. okay? And you go to Ryan and you say, Ryan. We're going to have our babies baptized. So Ryan comes to see me, and I say, I'm not baptizing your babies. Mm-hmm. You're out of fellowship with us. So he goes home, and you say, you go back up there, and you apologize to the priest. <laughs> you yeah. know, We're going to baptize going, yes, babies. Yes, we are. We're yep. coming back into fellowship. Yep. And I got Ryan and you under my thumb. Mm-hmm. Okay. Again, that's all a little—it's a little simplistic, but the point is the power being wielded by the church. Which also gets married to the state. It becomes citizenship. In yeah. the state as yeah. well. So you're not a citizen if you haven't been baptized. baptized. That's right. Particularly in the European context, that's what's going to happen. So so fast forward, and you get to where um, all this works for a, a long time. You know, there's the huge break between the church in the East and the West in the 11th century. But even the church in the East baptizes infants. They've mm. bought to that theology as well. Well, you get to the, the era of the Renaissance, and things start becoming unraveled. You know, feudalism is failing. Mm. You've got nobility that no longer wants to pay homage to the Pope. Um, they don't want to necessarily be, be ruled by one central king. You know, they don't want another Charlemagne, if you will. Mm-hmm. These these nobles want their own, their own power, their own. They're loyal to their own geographical region. They've got their own family lineage to worry about, and they're tired of kissing the Pope's ring. Well, all that's happening, and you've got theologians who are beginning to look at some of this and say, hmm. You know that that right there doesn't add up to me. Where where is the real authority? Is well, it in just the church? The world falls apart in yeah. Europe around like the, you have the plague, you have the Renaissance, you have there are three popes at one time at a certain. I mean, like <laughs> it's, Europe it's, is a hot it's, it's, disaster exactly. before it's, the Reformation. It's, it's like there's a whole lot of kindling wood laying around. They thought the world was yeah. ending mm-hmm. legitimately. Yes, absolutely. So then you got reason. you've got Pope Julius, who chooses that name. He's in Rome, and he is in charge of the papal states. He has his own army, and he names himself Julius after Julius Caesar. And he dresses that way, carries himself that way, marches on white horses, leads armies to battle. Mm. And he says— A little He says, here's what I'm going to do. Go back to three, 325. In the 320s, Constantine asked his mother to go find all the holy places, and he said, we'll build churches there. Mm. So they find the the burial place of Peter in Rome on Vatican Hill. Well, that's where they—you couldn't bury inside the walls of Rome, so they went outside the walls of Rome. And that's where the, quote-unquote, pagans—Peter would have been viewed as a pagan. They were all buried out there together. Paul was a Roman citizen, so Paul couldn't be crucified. Paul was killed on the Ostian Way. He was beheaded, which was a, to them was a, was a safer way to kill somebody. It was quick. You know, there was no suffering. So— 
that Paul was buried out on the Ostian Way. So Helena finds all this. So she comes back and tells Constantine, well, we found Paul, we found Peter. And he said, well, let's build a church there. So they build the church to Peter, build the church to Paul. She goes to Jerusalem and says, well, where was Jesus? Where was, he, where was Jesus born? They take her to Bethlehem. They say, well, you know, here's the shepherd fields. So Constantine said, build a church there. Where was Jesus crucified? And where was he, where was he buried? Where was the tomb? So Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So if you go back to the 320s, all those churches were built by Constantine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, the church, that by that time, you get to the 1400s, Rome is the central authority. But the problem was the church in Rome, the most famous church, was falling apart. St. Peter's. So Julius said, let's tear it down. Now, this church of Constantine built. Okay, so it's been around for, what, a thousand years. Mm-hmm. But it was falling down. Everybody knew it. So, But at the time, you had this incredible group of people, Bartolini and Michelangelo and eventually Bernini, all these incredibly gifted people. So they did. They tore it down. And they said, now we're going to rebuild a new one, much more glorious than the old one. How are we going to pay for it? Because the Pope, like you just said, is losing Authority. He, he used to. He could have gone to the German nobles and the French officials and the Spanish. Oh, and they lost North Queen. Africa too at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, could have gone to North Africa and could, could have said, "All right, here's here's the deal. Your piece is mm. pick a number." Well, he didn't have as much authority anymore, so they decided to 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 take a doctrine of grace that basically was built around the work of the saints, and so there's this treasury of good works that the church owns. Because you know good and well, Paul was a better person than you, and Paul had a lot. Paul had way more good works. He didn't need as much grace from God, so he has leftover. Mm-hmm. So all that's in the treasury. So here's the thing: you need some of that, because when you die, you have to be purged. So you go to this temporary holding place called purgatory, and here's how you get out of there: the church will grant you an indulgence, and would reduce your time in purgatory. Well, over time, that that theology was kind of bastardized, if I can say it that way. Mm-hmm. Where Julius said, you know what? That's a great motivator. Mm-hmm. So we can raise money that way. So now the church chose to start doing that. So you could out, not only could you buy indulgences or earn indulgences for yourself, you could actually buy them and purchase them for your family members who were deceased. So the church began developing this huge stewardship campaign. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. And he's living in Germany. And he's and in Germany, you've already got the the, the seeds of independence. You know, mm-hmm. and Luther's struggling with the scripture because he's trying to square what he's what he's been taught as a priest and what he's reading in his Bible. And so his abbot told him, Go to Rome, that'll help you. So he goes to Rome, makes it worse. He gets to Rome and he looks at everything and he says, This is this is not right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It just is too much. So he goes back home and he finally goes to his abbot with and his abbot said, I want you to teach the book of Romans. Well he he's on page one and he does, <laughs> he takes it to his abbot yeah. and he says, Either we're wrong or Paul's wrong. Which is it? And so Luther decides, we've got to figure this out. So Luther rails against the whole doctrine of indulgences. And and then he strikes a match. Well, there's so much kindling wood laying around. A huge fire Mm -hmm. breaks out. Mm. Luther then leads in this this reform of the church, what he would have called it. He's obviously, he's excommunicated. Well, there were other pastors in other towns who who were seeing the very same thing. One of them was a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. He was in Switzerland, in Zurich. He was the pastor of the church there. And he and Swing, he and Luther were, were friends. They were colleagues. Great man. Zwingli decided, I need to teach my students Greek because sola scriptura, only the scripture, needs to be our mantra. So he developed a, a, a school for Greek students. Well, the group of those students 
came to him one day with passages like this. And they asked him, they said, Pastor, why is it that every time we read about a baptism in the New Testament, it was only for believers? Why are there no infants being baptized? Swingley told them, you're too radical. You know, we're not, you can't do this. So in 1525, that group of students in Zurich, uh, there was one of them named Felix Mons. He lived with his mom at the time. So he invited them all over to his mom's house. So they all went. George Blaurock, Conrad Grable, Felix Mons, there was a whole group of them. And while they were meeting, George Blaurock said to Felix Mons and Conrad Grable, here's what we needed. We need to do what these people did in Acts 2. We've repented. We believe. We need to be baptized. So Blaurock asked Felix Mons, will you baptize me? So he did. So that was the first. water over his head. water over his head. First, as far as we know, first believer's Believers baptism baptism. on the European soil in centuries. They get called Anabaptists, which is a slur. It means double baptizers. So so the believer's church movement begins in Zurich. And these group of people, Anabaptists, like Luke said, they begin to plant new churches and they're free churches. They're not connected to the state. They're not connected to Roman Catholicism. They're not connected to the state churches mm-hmm. in which the illegal regions, which you couldn't do, but they did it anyway. Mm. Persecuted, but they practiced believer's baptism. And so Michael Schleitheim, um, Michael Sattler, rather, writes the, the confession in Schleitheim, Switzerland, called the Schleitheim Confession, which is the first confession written that basically says baptism is only for believers, 1527. And so we come from that movement where it was a rejection of the idea that children are born guilty. It was not a rejection of the idea that children are born sinners. The the Anabaptists believed you were born sinners. They rejected the idea that you were born guilty of your sin. And so they developed a whole theology that we now would call the, the, the age of accountability, the idea that at some point in your life, you reach a point where you're conscious of your own sin. And they trace that back to John 14, 15, and 16, where the Spirit of God will convict you of your sin, mm-hmm. not the church. Mm-hmm. And and that in order for you to be baptized, you've got to go through that process of conviction and repentance and belief. Mm-hmm. And so the Believer's Church was birthed in 1525, and it spreads across Europe. It has to go, like Luke said, they were being persecuted, so they had to go to places where they could find refuge. So they ended up in places like Amsterdam. You know, where there was a lot of free thinking uh, um, and where people were welcomed to come with new ideas. But they eventually decided to go to England. A group of them had been in England. They came to Amsterdam. They went back to England and they said, you know what, we need to take this to our church uh, back home. So that's what they did. And um, 1613, Thomas Helwes brought the first Baptist church to England and planted it on British soil. And, uh, and he wrote the very first plea for religious liberty in the English language. And they practiced believer's baptism. And they were persecuted. But a group of them eventually came to the U.S. And that whole idea of a free church, living in some type of a free society, it found really good, rich soil in America. Mm-hmm. And so a, a whole movement begins here that's rooted in freedom and liberty and freedom of conscience, and uh, a separation of the church and the state. Rhode Island is the uh, first colony. It's founded by Baptists. It's the first colony with total religious liberty, and it's because of those Baptist mm-hmm. ideals that eventually worked their way into the Constitution. Mm-hmm. It took a while. Mm-hmm. So, long story, but uh, but what I, I guess I want to make sure people know the whole concept of infant baptism was not just a theological issue. It was at its core 
but it got hooked into an authoritative mm-hmm. uh, thread that um, that only added to its strength, if if you will, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's still there today. Mm-hmm. Now I will say this in defense of the rest of my Christian brothers and sisters. You, you, if you have Roman Catholicism, you know, with this idea of salvific baptism, if you move away from Roman Catholicism, if you get, I would say right next to Roman Catholicism is the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church. If, you know, if you were kind of an unsuspecting Catholic and we were to blindfold you and drop you in an Anglican Church, you would have a hard time telling the difference, to be honest with you, especially nowadays. Um, so you, you still have that idea of baptism for the remission of sins for a baby. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you start moving away a little bit. Toward the, the the Protestant spectrum, with Presbyterians and Methodists, um, you, you get away from the salvific nature of baptism, and it becomes more monumental, if you will. It becomes more of a an expression of a promise of parents, and uh, and eventually the, the promise that you're making is not that that child necessarily is saved at that moment, but it's marking that child as a part of the family of God with the promise of the parent that you're going to rear that child, and the whole. Um, governance of the church and the methods of the church, and that at some point that child will be confirmed as a member of the church, as a already baptized member of the church. So I would say that Calvin and and eventually Wesley, those those leaders, Wesley in particular, will begin to remove the guilt aspect of sin in mm-hmm. its original state and see baptism more as a sign of being a part of the family of God and express promise from the parents, if mm-hmm. you will. So it changes its mm-hmm. Theology, but not as not its mode, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I did that. Yeah, so, I was baptized and mm-hmm. confirmed. Yeah, so and then baptized again. Yeah, whereas in the 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 old timey Baptist preacher would say you've you've only been baptized once, right? You know, but, I get that, but I know what you mean. But you know what I mean. And, uh, and so, what I would say today is, um, you know, I'm a Baptist by choice. I'm a believers' church person by choice. Um, but I can do that in a way that I hope is not condemning of these other views. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would basically say we've all had the freedom and the opportunity to draw a circle and basically say this self-identifies us. And if you want to be one of us, you step inside the yeah. circle. And I would say if you were to come to our Welcome Home Center and mm-hmm. or down front and express that you wanted to be baptized, but you were baptized as a child. Mm-hmm. Kurt Grice always says it so well. You know, his language is... That was a choice that someone made for you because they love you. Mm-hmm. And we're not trying to minimize that. What we're asking you to think about with believer's baptism is what's the choice you want to make for yourself in publicly professing Christ. Right. Um, we're not trying to diminish what your parents chose for you out of love for you mm-hmm. in any way. Mm-hmm. We ask, we're wanting to ask you, what's your choice? Right. What do you believe? What's your confession? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's why I don't, I don't, you know, when I was growing up, uh, in the Deep South, <clears throat> you had a theological debate about um, the true church. Mm-hmm. And so you had a lot of animosity between Roman Catholics, Baptists, and members of the Church of Christ family, because all three of them at some level claimed to be the only true church. And so I was raised in a landmark Baptist church. And and so in our church, we were taught we were the true church, and you could you could trace us all the way back to Jesus. That the Roman Catholic Church was an aberration, the Church of Christ was an aberration. Baptists were the true church. Mm. Well, the Church of Christ teachings in that part of the country at that time had the very same teaching. They were the only true church. It was only through their 
membership could you have eternal life. Mm. Roman Catholic Church taught the sure. same thing. Yeah. So we had these exclusive claims that were combating with each other when that? I was a kid growing mm. up. I even have little pamphlets that my church produced that I have in my office right now mm. written by our pastor. And it's one of them is a brief history of the Baptists. Tagline is the one and only true church. So, um, you know, mm. but I, so my, the people that I was reared by in that church, if you were to tell them we need to do an evangelistic campaign with our Roman Catholic brothers, everybody would have said, amen. Mm-hmm. We need to send missionaries because mm-hmm. they're lost. They would say the same thing about most Protestant denominations. Okay, now that's that has waned, unfortunately. So I, I count these folks as a part of the Christian family. If you've had a personal relationship with Christ, regardless of when you were baptized, mm-hmm. uh, I would count mm-hmm. you as a brother or sister in Christ. Mm-hmm. If you were to ask me theologically my conviction about baptism, I would share it with you because yeah. of my belief in the Believer's Church. Mm-hmm. But hopefully we can do that in a non-condemning way. But we don't think baptism saves you. Correct. We think Jesus Amen. saves you. Yep. Amen. In fact, we know Jesus yes. saves you. That's our conviction. <laughs> Deeply held right. conviction. Love it. So that's way more than you may have wanted to know there. So This is Tell Me More. A, you know, when else are you going to tell this that? This is yeah. Tell Me More, Tell Me More. <laughs> well, yeah, this is the deeper, this is Tell Me More, the underground. So, um, when else are we going to sit and listen? But I mean, you think if you grew up in a yeah. Baptist church, you can want to, you can minimize this issue because infant baptism has never been a question for you, but... More and more, we, I mean, I talked to a young man yesterday in our Welcome Home Center who grew up Catholic and was baptized in the Catholic Church, but wanted to make the decision to be baptized mm-hmm. now as an adult, as a believer. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of people, this is something that they're working through, wrestling yeah. through. And if you are someone who was baptized as an infant and is contemplating if you would like to be baptized as mm-hmm. an adult of your mm-hmm. own choice, know Let, that let's chat. we think... Mm-hmm. Jesus has saved you. That's right. So it's your relationship with Jesus and your confession of mm-hmm. him as Lord. Mm-hmm. Jesus saves you, mm-hmm. not baptism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But You will get no extra dispensation of grace That's right. upon baptism. There's something deep and profound about you standing up in front of your congregation and declaring Jesus as Lord. Mm-hmm. It is a way that you participate in Jesus' death and resurrection symbolically. Mm-hmm. But the symbol matters. It's important. We've talked before about spiritual formation only ever happens through bodily practice. You can't do anything to your spirit apart from your body. Mm-hmm. So we think there's something special and significant about being baptized by immersion mm-hmm. uh, because it does remind us and points to death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. That's uh, right. Very well said there. I like it. My gosh. What else do we want to tackle today? <laughs> we are sitting at about an hour-long okay, podcast. Way. If you like <laughs> church history, Tell me more, really? this hour, yeah. Do you really want to know? Do you really want to know more? Uh, if you made we it, the, if you made it this far, oh man, if made it this far. I'm telling you what, though, some of our listeners, this kind of church history deep dive is is very fascinating to them. It's very encouraging. It helps them just understand the full picture of faith, and so. I mean, we yeah. joke about it, but that's what this is designed for. Can so. I provide some summary notes because this has been a doozy. If it you're still been. listening, Luke's <laughs> recapping for us. Right. So maybe I'll have Kyle put in the description. If you need a recap, it's at the end. You can say it at the intro. Uh, yeah. Pentecost is tied to Babel. It's a historic Jewish festival. Note one. I'd say that. So weave those threads together. Okay. Um, believer's baptism, immersion baptism is scriptural. Mm-hmm. It is historic. Most ancient baptisms we uncover are huge, meant for immersion. Earliest texts mm-hmm. outside of Scripture would also point to baptism by immersion. You can look up the Didache and read it. It's written about 80 AD. That's confusing. 80 mm-hmm. AD. <laughs> um, 
And 80, 80. You know, as your church, we're not going to condemn you for having had an infant baptism. We don't think baptism saves you. Jesus saves you. Mm-hmm. Any any other notes that I'm boom. missing if we're going to do really a good. boom Light. recap? Wow. Boom. Boom. Mic drop. Boom. Okay. Come back next week. We'll probably do something different, but we might do this again. <laughs> we reserve the right. Thank you all. Okay. Have a good week. for listening to the Tell Me More podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at fbca.org to find out more information about the podcast and our church. Thanks for listening. Have a good day.